Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I had to fight the urge, you guys, to say, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Um, I don't know why. I think I probably sang that on Sean and I's podcast, Opinions That Don't Matter, because we sing a lot over there. Um, but anyways, welcome back. Um, today I have 10 questions. And if you're wondering if you're new, first of all, welcome, not welcome back. Welcome. Um, I asked for the questions on the community tab of our podcast channel, which is called get ready opinions that don't matter. So just go onto YouTube, type in opinions that don't matter and you will find us. Ta-da! Um, and it's in the community tab over there that on Mondays I post asking for your questions. Um, And I am going to have a special guest coming on soon, I think. Is it next week or the week after? I forget. Um, But anyway, so keep an eye out for those because I'll be asking for some of your parenting questions, uh, questions about being a mom, stuff like that, um, as well as other things. So anyways, stay tuned. I'm excited. Um, Today is going well. Just a quick update. uh, thing. I finished another chapter in my book. Um, If you don't know, I'm writing my second book all about trauma. And I finished uh, the 13th chapter. I know some people don't like that number, but I was born on October 13th and I love the number 13. Sean and I were married July 13th, 2013. Love 13s. Um, So I just finished that chapter and that means I only have two more to go. Plus an introduction, epilogue and stuff like that, but uh, two more main chapters. The introduction and epilogue are usually just like shorter, uh, I don't know, a couple pages here and there. So it's not so intense. I am excited. And today I did yoga for the first time in a while and my back and body popped so much. Do you guys ever have that happen? Like you lay down there like and roll onto your back. My back's like, and I was like, yes, it's so satisfying. I don't know what it is. I don't know if you find that that as well, but you let me know. Um, But I find it to be so satisfying. Um, So yeah, things are going well. I also, I received a flat Stanley and I've I just think there's, look, he's got a little mask. He's so cute. Anyway, I received him from um, some children all the way over in Australia. Um, over, I think they're in Adelaide, technically. I, for, I forget um, if that's exact. Uh, sorry, Emily, the one who sent me that. But um, anyways, so Flat Stanley and I were podcasting. I had to take a picture with him because he's podcasting with me. Um, and then I get to do some other fun things with him and try to bring him along on my week. So I am very excited. Um, anyways... Enough about me. Everything is going okay. This week has been good. And I'm not going to lie. I know this sounds woo-woo and stupid. And if you're feeling bad, you have every right to feel bad. It's okay. Um, I don't believe that, you know, we. what I believe is that we need to make space for all feelings. However, this week, every time when I've gotten up, I'm, I'm practicing something. When I wake up in the morning, I say to myself, today's going to be a great day because I'm going to choose to make it a great day. And this week has been pretty good. 
And then the things that I have to do that I don't want to do, like I had to go back to the dentist because my night guard that I wear because I grind my teeth at night. Yeah. Um, anyway, it didn't fit right and it was hurting me. And so I had to take it out and was like, ugh. And so I went in today to get it resized. I like grind parts down and fix it for me. Um, I didn't want to have to do that. I was like, ugh. But as soon as I went, ugh, I thought to myself, Katie, it's going to be great. You get to go for a walk. You get to be outside. You get to get in the car. You get to drive. Like there's so many things that are nice about that. Usually I'm just in my house. So let's start to just get through it. And it was done. I was done in like 15 minutes and back home within a half an hour. It was amazing. So it ended up being okay. Anyway, I just say that because sometimes if you just focus on the good and try to make it a good day, it could be a good day. That's not always the case, but for me this week, it has so far been very, very helpful and successful. Okay. Again, enough about me. Let's get into your questions. And question number one says, hi, Katie. I'm wondering if you can tell when a client isn't being authentic with you and themselves during session. Does this happen often? I found myself leaving session with my therapist and being frustrated because I think I had a facade up. Like I wanted to be perceived as smart or just wanting confirmation of what I already know rather than getting to real things that may be more uncomfortable. I wonder if it's partly because of my job where I'm constantly creating and delivering presentations to try to quote unquote sell an idea. But also if it's just a way of self-preservation and protection, I know I should just tell my therapist this, but I feel embarrassed about it. Um, okay, so it kind of depends on the person. Frankly, I don't always know when clients aren't being authentic um, because I may not know you that well. It all depends on how well I know a, a client. However, if you aren't being authentic for, for our entire like relationship and me getting to know you, then I wouldn't know. Does that make sense? And so um, I can't tell. However, I can tell when people avoid things so easily. There's all like people try to tell jokes, try to change the subject, try to take the conversation in a different direction, like by adding in other things that aren't important. And I'll be like, I'll let them go down that rabbit hole. And then I'm like, okay, now back to, and they're like, damn it. Um, so I am good at that. So I will know when you're trying to like pull us off course because something's uncomfortable. Um, and that I'm very used to and very, I think, good at. Um, but when it comes to not being authentic, I think a lot of people feel this way where we want to be perceived as smart. And, um, and what, what you're talking about, that wanting confirmation is what we kind of call like confirmation bias, meaning like when we read documentation or when we talk to someone, we're looking for them to just validate and confirm what we already know. We're not looking for new information. And we all know it's through new information, uh, challenging discussions maybe, and reading uh, data that, I mean, I'm talking like, because I do research a lot, right? So reading data that doesn't support what I already, what I thought. Um, that's actually when we grow and that's when we learn more and we become better people. And so I, the real thing is that this is very common. I've heard from so many of you that you do this, that you struggle, that you like rehearse things in your head. A lot of you in the comments below this, uh, comment itself is comments, commenting on comments. Um, we're talking about how you like rehearse what you want to say to make sure it sounds right. And there's nothing wrong with coming in with a plan of like what you want to talk about in a session. However, I just have to say this because I know it goes against being human, but therapy is not the place to be judged. I don't actually care if you're smart or, you know, talking about things and with proper language, like that doesn't actually matter. And that doesn't really help anything. Being intelligent assists us when we're trying to do homework and ensuring that you understand what I'm asking you to do. However, it really doesn't have an effect on how I'm going to treat you or 
um, how therapy sessions are going to go. And so I would encourage you. I know you said you should just tell your therapist and you should 100 percent. But there's a couple other questions. It could be partly because of your job because you're trying to sell an idea. We can get caught up in that role like, oh, this is what I do. However, I really just think that that that's usually work us. The way that I would uh, what I would ask you if you were trying to figure out if this was because of your job or not is I would ask at home or in other scenarios, do you find yourself feeling on on being like, you know, on top of our game, uh, being very presentable, speaking very clearly, making people think this is a good idea? Do we find ourselves trying to sell people on ideas outside of work? If we do, then this could very well be part of that. And then I would bring that up in therapy where I would say, hey, I have a tough time turning off. In work, I try to sell ideas and sell people on things. And so I find myself trying to sell myself to you in therapy so that you think I'm a good person, I'm smart, I'm respectable, all that, or whatever it is, right? Maybe that's how you could bring it up. Um, But if you don't find yourself trying to quote unquote sell things outside of work, then it's probably not work related. And then um, asking also if it is just a way of self-preservation. I knew that yawn was coming, guys. It's because I've been talking too much already and I wasn't breathing properly. I gotta breathe. Um, It's not you, it's me, is what I'm saying. So the other question, if it's also just a way of self-preservation and protection, 100%. uh, What we call, what you're doing, and sorry, I'm messing with my mic if you're listening. um, What we call this is a defense mechanism. In therapy, these things that we do to protect ourselves come out in full force, right? Because they're like, oh my God. We're going to let someone in. We're going to tell them all scary things. No, no, no. And so we can uh, be very logical, which could be kind of what you're doing, where you're trying to like put together your argument fully, uh, make sure that it's very well thought out and planned. We can uh, talk about things as if they're not that close to us or related to us or affecting us as much as they are. We can kind of like distance ourselves from things. We can do a lot of different things to kind of protect ourselves from the vulnerability that comes along with being in therapy. So that is very normal. Um, And I guess my best advice for this, now that we've talked about it kind of throughout like what all this means and where it could come from um, and that it is very common, um, the best thing is to opposite action it. And I know this is a really difficult, if you guys don't uh, know about dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, Opposite action is what we do uh, in part of our, I think it's emotion regulation skills. I think it's the more advanced ones. But anyway, opposite action is that we have our impulse, right? Our impulse is to use the defense mechanism to uh, ensure that we're perceived intelligent and we're getting confirmation for what we already believe and we're not really challenging ourselves. That's our defense mechanism. It's too scary to do anything else. Okay, that's the immediate like impulse. Then opposite action asks us, check in with that impulse and the emotions that come around it. Does it line up with like our ultimate goal or does it line up with what other people are doing? Like we're just checking in, right? Is we're checking the facts. Does, is this helpful? Is this beneficial? Is this something that I I want to do? Is this, uh, or is it going to hurt me? Like what could be the outcome of this, right? Then we do the opposite thing, push back against it. Instead of not sharing, we do share. Instead of worrying that we sound smart, we talk about the fact that sometimes we feel stupid and we worry about that or whatever is hiding in, in these concerns because there's a lot hiding in there. Um, anyway, we push back and we do the opposite thing. And so 
That could be writing it down and reading from it. That could be emailing if your therapist allows for that or texting. We've got to get this out because the truth about this is because it's such a big stumbling block, there's there's a lot of helpful information for your therapist in this. And I'm very curious why it's so important for you to be perceived as smart and for you to get confirmation about what you already know. And what is it that you're running away from? What is uncomfortable? I'm very curious. And that's where therapy starts. Isn't all that stuff that we try to like hide away and distract? Look over here and wait, no, what about this? And then defense mechanism, defense mechanism, right? We do that like kind of, it's like a dance almost to try to distract our therapist from it, even though that's what we really need the work to be about and what we need to actually talk about work on all that stuff. So yeah, try to find a way to tell your therapist. It's super common. They may not already, they may not know because if you don't know another way of you being, then it'd be really hard for us to know whether you're being authentic or not. Um, I can usually tell when patients are lying, like flat out lying, uh, body language, uh, ways like won't make eye contact, certain things people do. Um, but not always, right? We're not, I'm not like a lie detector. I'm not perfect. And I, I miss things, right? Therapists aren't always, um, able to get everything. Um, so the best way is to just say it. So find a way, write it, email, any of those things. Um, you got this, trust me, your therapist going to be like, I had a feeling, but I wasn't sure. Or um, let's talk about that then. When did this happen? And why did this come up? And where else in your life does this happen? I mean, there'll be all sorts of questions and that will be super beneficial for you. And the therapy will begin. Okay. Keep us posted. Let me know how that goes. I remember back in the day, sorry, that just spurred a memory. I used to do, um, I used to answer, this is like way back, you guys, like probably for the first year, Maybe you guys have to let me know. You might know more than me, but I think it was for the first year that I was on YouTube. I could keep up with all the comments and questions on all social media, whether it's Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, any of those things. Instagram didn't exist yet. I would answer everything. And I remember um, on Tumblr in particular, I would reply and be like, okay, keep me posted. Let me know. And somebody's like, do you actually really care or want to know? And I was like, of course I do. Why would I be a therapist if I didn't want the follow up? Like giving an answer and not knowing how someone does or how if that works out or if they have follow-up questions, that doesn't actually, I don't know, that's not the full picture. Um, so when I say let us know, let us know. Um, and for those of you in the comments, if, if you think it's getting buried, if you see a response and like someone saying, hey, thanks for that, it really helped or I didn't get that, you know, give it a thumbs up so we can see, so I can see the progress because um, I love to follow up. Anyway, that just bubbled into my brain. Also, spoilers, um, not spoilers. I don't even know why I said that. That's not even true at all. It's more like, hey, look out. We're about to hit a million subscribers on my um, my main channel. And it's crazy. It's funny because I thought it'd be like this huge, like, oh my God. And I'm sure I'll be stoked. But it's it's like eight and a half years in <laughs> to being on YouTube. Almost, well, almost it'd be nine in December. Anyway, it's just crazy. I'm like, wow, what? wow, I thought a million was like such a big deal. And now I'm like, you know, it's exciting. I've been working at it for a really long time. Um, and we'll do a live stream and stuff, but it's just funny how, how we always think we know what we want and it's going to be, su- it's going to be this, that, and the other. And then we get there and you're like, uh, it's great, but it's not like what I thought it was going to be. Um, anyways, but thank you to all of you who have followed along and been on this journey with me, even if it's been for a week. Thanks for being here. We've learned a lot together. We've grown a lot. I have become eight and a half years older than I was and got licensed, uh, grew my private practice, 
quit my full-time job. We've done so much together. So anyway, very cool. It's a, it's a reflective time for me, I think, more than anything. Okay, question number two. What is the difference between coping skills and straight-up ignoring signs of mental distress? I've been so stressed lately. I lost my job with COVID six months ago and still haven't found a new one, though I've been applying. I thought I was coping by going on walks and doing yoga when I can, but the anxiety has really been slapping me in the face lately. I can't sleep through the night and my period came much earlier than it should, which has never happened to me in my life. I don't know what to do. I thought I was going or I was coping by increasing my exercise, but I've been using that as a way to ignore or but have I been using that as a way to ignore the anxiety? I thought I was doing okay, but all of a sudden I feel like it has gone terribly wrong. Okay, so this is a great question. There was a lot of chatter and also it made me just really want to hug our community because some people in the comments below this um, told them how to apply to get the stimulus checks and uh, Trump had that executive order for money. If you don't live in the States, I'm sorry. You're probably like, what? But I'm sure your countries and um, other parts of the world are doing something similar. Um, in the U.S., if you are out of work or if you lost your job to COVID, there are uh, stimulus packages that they're offering that you get your unemployment and then you get an extra bonus, like anything from 200 to $400 depending on the state that you live in. So um, someone shared how to get that money, how to go about it and how it works and why they're seeing the amount that they're seeing. And that was just lovely. And so thank you to the person who shared that. Thank you to our community for just being so wonderful all the time. Um, it just, it warms my heart. So the difference between a coping skill and straight up ignoring signs of mental distress is that a coping skill is something that we utilize to help us feel better or to get through a time of distress, meaning it's a short lived thing. So while we're doing trauma work or while we're, um, let's say uh, you're preparing for a big presentation and you're super maxed out, you use that coping skill for those like week, maybe one week or two weeks while you're preparing for it, right? Then you don't need it anymore. Coping skills, we, we're going to need off and on throughout our life. However, it helps us feel better. And that's it. That's the whole reason they exist. They help us manage all the upset and angst and flashbacks or dissociation or urges to self-injure, use eating disorder behaviors, any of that. They help us manage all of those symptoms so that we cannot do the things that are unhealthy, get through, ride the waves of life's ups and downs and be okay. Cool? That's what a coping skill is. However, signs of mental distress, th those can be happening and a coping skill can help us feel better. But if that continues to happen and the cope, we're just like over coping because it sounds like the exercise has been the only way that you've learned to cope and we're going to need to have more of those. Okay. <laughs> I know I'm, I feel like I'm a little all over the place with that answer, but we're going to need more. So coping skills help you feel better and they don't, they don't really get rid of the mental distress. They can assist in it. Meaning like one coping skill could be to journal. Um, or to use impulse logs, or to talk to a friend about it, and all that stuff, right? And I saw in the comments, the person who asked is like, oh, I don't want to put, put this on my friends. A lot of them are already having a tough time, or some of them are doing well. I don't want to bring them down. What are friends for? I have to push back on that. Yes, it sucks if we um, have a friend who's complaining all the time and doesn't want any, um, any advice, or any insight, or any tools, or any 
really don't want, doesn't want to do anything to feel better. We've all had those people and we've all been those people, right? Sometimes we're just in a pit of despair and we don't want to be us and nobody wants to be around us and we know that and it's just bad. So I get that we could be there, but with this, I'm telling you, it's a shitty time in life for a lot of people right now and you need that connection and that support from your friends and family more than ever. If you haven't watched my videos about the coronavirus and managing that stress and anxiety, we know through research that the antidote to our stress response is connection. Connection with other people who understand where we're going through and where we're at. It's that true mutual respect and understanding that helps us feel better. (sighs) Our amygdala can stop sounding the alarm. Our limbic system can stop um, running our brain so that we can make some actual good decisions. Um, it's really important. So please, please, please talk to them, reach out. And so then, so there's that. Then my, the next thought I have is sure exercise helps, but we're going to need to add more things like, um, could be distractions. So coping skills come in a lot of different forms, right? We can, if we struggle with dissociation, coping skills could be things like grounding techniques or safe spaces we go to in our brain and our imagination, either one that we've been to or when we create, right? We can do that. Um, but they can also be like, I'm going to go color. I'm going to go for a walk. Moving your body helps, but we need more. So I want you to watch my video called 25 coping skills. Just get on YouTube and search Katie Morton coping skills. It will come up. Um, check that out because that will offer you a more robust toolbox, I guess, of coping skills. Um, not to mention in the comments because I, there it says it's 25 coping skills, but spoilers, it's only 24. And I asked everybody watching to offer up one in the comments below. So there are tons down there. Um, so try some out. Find ways to manage. Um, I also think you said you're seeing a therapist in the comments below this. Um, let your therapist know and also know that it's okay to feel how you feel. And it's okay to maybe need a little extra support right now. Like possibly we need to see a psychiatrist for a short time because medication could help us with our anxiety because we're not able to get our head above water right now. And that's okay. Doesn't mean we have to be on it forever. Doesn't mean there's any judgment about medication. Doesn't mean you have to go on medication. I'm just giving you some more options because I don't want you to feel like this is the only thing. Um, you know, it's the only way you can feel. There's no way out. Feeling hopeless and helpless like that doesn't get anybody anywhere. So know that there are resources and I would encourage you to reach out and speak up. Um, So yeah, I guess those are my thoughts. It does get better. We need more coping skills. Check out my video. Um, That will really help. And signs of mental distress are more about like if we can't function, which you aren't functioning. Um, And so it's like you're kind of trying to cope, but it's not because the coping isn't helping you actually feel better. Coping isn't just, um, can't just be distractions. So it has to be some process in there. And you'll notice in the video that I'm referencing, telling you to go check it out, half of them are processing ones because distractions just help us calm our system down so that we can do the processing ones. Meaning you probably need to cry and grieve losing your job and feel what you're feeling right now. A lot of us are going through it and it's really hard and terrible. Our world feels like it's on fire and it's okay to feel bad about that and feel sad about that and just let yourself be in it. Um, And so we're kind of just ignoring, I I definitely think you're ignoring the signs of mental distress because you're not able to like function in your life and your period coming much earlier is a good indication um, for those of us who have periods out there. They're a good indication of where our body's at and how we're doing. If we have really, really bad cramps or really heavy period or really light or it comes earlier, those are all signs that something's off. 
something's different in our life, whether it be emotionally, dietary, uh, all sorts of things. So check that out. Um, and yeah, I would see a psychiatrist, see if a medication could be potentially beneficial. Also, I have lots of videos about anxiety that could help, um, just help you better manage, but check out those coping skills, man, because you are ignoring the signs of mental distress and coping still, you're going to need those. They're still going to help you get over it, but they're not actually making you feel better because you need more assistance. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't we're all, we all need different levels of assistance, assistance at different times. That was like almost a tongue twister. Um, keep us posted. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry you lost your job. Fuck man. Things are so crazy right now, but I hope um, you're able to get more support. And thank you again to the person who let you know how to apply for certain monies and why certain monies were in your account and all that stuff. That was really, really great of them. Okay. Um, and I hope I answered that question. Cause I'm like, what's the difference between them? I think it's just like functioning and coping should make you feel better. And if it's not enough, we need more. Okay. Says, hi, Katie. This is question number three. Sorry. Moving on. Um, Katie, do you ever have patients that don't seem to get better after trying every possible treatment plan? Yes. I suffer from depression and generalized anxiety disorder with panic attacks. And I feel like I've reached the point where I've exhausted all of my options. I've tried so many medications over the years um, that all either become ineffective after a year or have horrible side effects that put me into a worse state. I have tried several therapy sessions with multiple therapists and they don't seem to help at all. I realize that many of my options are limited for financial reasons, but I can't change that anytime soon. I just feel myself continually getting worse and every time I try something different to get better, it falls through. I'm left feeling more and more hopeless. Is this common? And if um, you ever came across something like this, where would you go from here? Thank you so much for everything you do. Um, I have a couple thoughts about this question, but just from the, the get, like, do you ever have patients that don't seem to get better after trying every possible treatment plan? Yes. And the way that it works for me is if someone is plateauing or it's not a good fit, right? Like I'm leaving, I'm telling them to do homework and they can't do any of it. I refer them out to see a psychiatrist or to see someone different, right? Maybe I'm not the right fit. Maybe the help that they need isn't the thing that I can actually give. Um, and so, uh, it is very common. It is something that I do and, um, or deal with, I guess not do. It's more like I deal with it and I refer because in therapy, when you're being trained to be a therapist, you're taught to uh, understand what the standard of care is, which doesn't really, you guys don't really need to understand what it is, but it's like, what am I capable of offering and what's outside of my standard of care? Like I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to give you advice on what medications you should or shouldn't try. And no therapist should do that for you. We are not medical doctors, even a psychologist. They're not a medical doctor. Even though you call them doctor, they did not go to medical school. The only people you should talk to about medication, potentially like a psych nurse, nurses, there's a lot of psych nurses that are trained that know about psychotropic medication, but physicians, a psychiatrist is like the best. So just putting it out there, there's things that we do and can't do, like I'm not trained in EMDR. If I was trying to offer that to a patient, I could just potentially do more harm than good. Those are things that like I would refer out. So if someone falls outside of my standard of care, I'm going to refer out. If someone isn't doing well in my care, I'm going to maybe increase sessions, refer them to some other uh, applicable resources like a psychiatrist or group therapy possibly. And if it still isn't working, I'm going to look for a more intensive care or a different type of therapist. I'm going to refer them out that way. Okay, so just so, ow, sorry, I wet my elbow on my computer. So just in case you were 
you know, if you're in a similar situation, hopefully that kind of helps you understand how that works. Okay. And it is very common, unfortunately, that things just don't work for someone. And I do want to say that, um, the changing medications, um, and it said that you, I'm hoping, I thought I read that in this, that you'd been on the medications for quite a little while, but something that when people say they've tried so many medications over the years, I always am very curious about how long you've been on them. I talked about this. I want to say it was last week or the week before that in order to get a full trial run of a medication to know if it's helping you or not, we need to make sure that you're on it for a good, I would say, again, I'm not a doctor, but I'm saying like two months. We need to give it a real chance to work for us. If the side effects are bad from the get, because side effects usually come about pretty quickly as we titrate up the dose, meaning increase the dose of medication, um, that's fine. We can stop it. I'm not saying you can't stop it. Again, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just saying we want to make sure that we give it a real chance to work for us before we just stop something. Because all that stopping and starting, then we never know if anything helped us and it can feel like we don't get any better and nothing's helping. I do want to offer one resource when it comes to medications because I've had patients do this and it's been, they've been pretty successful with it is doing a cheek swab to find out what, uh, what medications work for you. Now, I don't, I forget the brands. There are like five, back in the day, there was just one brand and no insurance covered it and it was so frustrating. However, now we have like three or four different brands of these cheek swabs. And what it is, is they, you know, you swab your cheek um, or you spit in a thing and you send it off and it tells you based on your profile, your genetic profile, what is more likely to work for you and not work for you. So it can really save you the time of trying a bunch of medications over and over. You can pick one that is like the top one that's supposed to work with your your body. And I think that's really cool. And a lot of insurances cover it. And even if they don't, I want to say one of my patients paid out of pocket and it was like $90. Um, so I know that can be expensive for a lot of you, but I'm just throwing that out there that if it's not covered, that's possible. And then where would I go from here? Okay, so I've kind of covered all the stuff within the question, exhausting all your options. Um, and your options are limited for financial reasons. Because the one thing about this question that really struck me was I've tried several therapy sessions with multiple therapists and they didn't help at all. Several, I'm not sure what several means, but I understand financially it can be limiting. I would encourage you to try to find a cheaper therapy option, either asking them if they work on a sliding scale or maybe trying like the Talkspace Better Helps of the world um, to get some lower cost care because several is not enough. Uh, again, it's kind of like going back to the medication. We need to give it a full trial run. With a therapist, I really think we need to give it a good, I, I mean, in that two-month range. I know that seems like a lot of investment, but that's only eight hours. <laughs> that's eight hours with someone total over a course of how many hours in two months? Somebody do the calculations. I'm not a mathematician um, or rain man who could just run that really quickly, but we need to give it, they need, we need to give the therapist and ourselves time to trust them, open up, get resources, try those resources, do the homework or whatever, and see if it helps us. And that's going to take a little while. And so I know that that is hard to hear, but that is the real truth. And that is really where I believe your help is hiding. I, I, medication, like I've talked about this before, medication only does so much. Medication is like a life raft. It gets our head above water so the symptoms aren't so intense so that we can actually do the homework and the work in therapy. So that's the role of medication. Um, for people with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, it can, it can be very different. You know, the role of medication is then to like stabilize our mood or to remove as much as possible our hallucinations or delusions and things that scare us so that we can, you know, live a life fully. 
but it's still just getting that head above water so we can do the work in therapy. And so I really would encourage you to, if therapy is not an option long-term for you to afford it, um, maybe group therapy is, I believe group therapy can be just as beneficial. So you could look into that. There's tons of groups out there now, especially because everybody's working from home. It's easier for us to do them online. Um, and then there's lower cost care. You can ask for a sliding scale. Um, but then also there's workbooks and things. I have it in my Amazon. I think you go amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. I have workbooks that I use with my patients in there and books that I just enjoy. Uh, journals that I think are pretty, things like that. I have my own journal um, that I sell on YouTube called Getting My Shit Together. And that could be something that, you know, is helpful um, if you want that one. But we need to get you some other resources to help support you. And so I think that those are some of the options that I see for you. Um, again, medication will only do so much. Because depression and generalized anxiety disorder with panic attacks really means that we need just more, we need like cognitive behavioral therapy could be really beneficial, but you're going to need, you know, 10, 20 sessions. We, you know, I don't know how, what, like if there are low cost clinics, like I worked at one in North Hollywood for a year, a year and a half or so, um, the center for individual and family counseling, the CIFC. Um, I worked there and I mean, people saw me for free for 20 bucks, things like that. There's a lot of low cost clinics. So maybe ask around, call your local hospital, ask them if they know of any low cost therapy clinics um, and things like that. Those are just some resources and some advice because I really want you to get in there and get some support and work um, with someone you connect with. And I hope that that helps. Keep me posted though. Um, I know this is hard. And I don't mean that, you know, it's going to be like a quick fix or anything like that. But through proper treatment and therapy, it does get better. And that's where I would go from here is finding you a therapist who really specializes or um, there's when it comes to anxiety, you can look for someone who does ACT is a, is a type and you can look for that in workbooks too. Um, and I, I'll have my anxiety workbook uh, coming out soon. Um, I'm rehashing it and adding some more stuff to it. So uh, it was supposed to come out in September, but I think we're pushing out to October just because I'm writing a book. It's a lot of stuff going on, you guys. Um, so that there's that. And anyway, there are resources out there. You get your hands on them. It does get better. Okay, question number four. Katie, I know that there are intrusive thoughts, but are intrusive emotions a thing? You bet. I have these painful emotions that hit me out at seemingly minor incidences or while I'm having a train of thought and I struggle to understand them. I also wonder what I can do about them. And then under this, there was a comment that said, can you know anything or, or do you know anything on intru about intrusive memories? Meaning I can't get these, um, I get these, sorry, I think English is our second language. Meaning I can get these two sometimes where the sufferer will think they've had a memory or the pa in the past, whether it happened for real, not happened or partially happened. Okay. So, um, and I think I just read that wrong. Sorry for the person who wrote that correctly. <laughs> I just read it incorrectly. Okay. Intrusive mem or intrusive emotions are a thing, especially when it comes to trauma. Mm. I have been reading so much about trauma because of my book and we can have uh, intrusive emotions mainly because of the way that trauma memories are stored. If you don't recall, I've talked at nauseum about trauma memories and how they're not stored the same way or processed in our brain the same way that non-trauma memories are. Therefore, we can be uh, we can come into contact with frag like fragments of this memory um, and not know where it's attached to, which comes with in intrusive emotions. Meaning, all of a sudden, we can feel 
terrified and not know why. Or we can feel embarrassed. We can feel vulnerable. And it can kind of come out of nowhere. I've had patients even have like uh, body memories in this way where it's like, I don't know what this is attached to, but oh my God, I'm so uncomfortable. And things like that can happen. So it's really kind of part of what I believe are trauma memories, as well as I do want to, um, that would be the most common in my experience, okay? But also I believe that we can have intrusive um, emotions, maybe attached to part of our OCD. If we have pure O, maybe it's part of that. I haven't heard about that. I haven't read about that, but I just know that there's a lot of intrusive experiences, meaning intrusive thoughts and intrusive um, part of that like obsession compulsion component of OCD. We can have that, but I don't know if anybody, if you guys out there with OCD, if you agree or disagree with me, I have not had an experience with this and I haven't had anybody tell me about this, but I want to recognize so that the person who asks this question, if that's part of your um, mental illness, you know, or struggles that you're having, you think you might have OCD, it could be part of that. And I would talk to a therapist about that Um, just because intrusive thoughts can be kind of, you know, such a large component of that and intrusive emotions could be connected. So I just want that to be out there. Um, But you said that it's painful emotions that hit you seemingly with minor incidences. So I would assume it's related to trauma. And then the person talking about intrusive memories um, though, again, back to the trauma, we can stumble across fragments of memories and have all of a sudden something come back to us. And I've talked about triggers, um, in a, a lot of ways, right over the years. And really the way that triggers affect us is they come to us through our five senses, right? It can be, you know, what we, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. Um, and however that triggers us, we can, um, it can pull us into that memory. So like, let's say I'm walking down the street and someone's wearing the perfume that my abuser wore. I can, without even maybe even recognizing that that's what triggered it, I can be pulled into that trauma memory and it can feel like an intrusive memory. So that's what I would suspect with this. And whether it happened or not, or it's complete or a full memory or not, doesn't, I don't really think is that important. I'm more curious about are there certain times of day or instances or people where these happen the most? Um, are we in a certain area? That Those are the things that I would look for because that's, you know, that's what I mean by like intrusive. Uh, I think that's why they feel intrusive is because we've stumbled upon something that's triggering. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Um, but either way, I feel like these two things are just so, I don't know, I just feel like it's trauma related. Neither of you told me for either part of the people who asked this question, you didn't tell me it was related to PTSD, but I, I am suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Well, I can't help it. Um, so yeah, anyway, hopefully that helps you. Okay. Question number five says, hi, Katie. I wanted to ask you about how I could know what is therapy material. For example, I'm bisexual and I think um, it's not something that on its own bugs me in any special way. But even so, I'm from a very conservative country and half of my family is very close-minded. So I don't really feel like coming out to them. You never have to. It's up to you. Even though it's not something I'm ashamed of or anything. So I don't know if that is something I should bring up and talk about in therapy. I thought this was really great, um, a really great question. And someone had left a comment below this saying how they brought it up to their therapist and it didn't go very well. And I... 
over the years, I am constantly reminded of how fortunate I am to live in the in Los Angeles. Um, not for some reason, like some ways it's not so great. Like I pay a lot in rent and our apartment's shitty. But in other ways, it's great because we have such a an active LGBTQ plus community and tons of clinicians who specialize in it. And most people, myself included, are what you call, I would call like a sex positive therapist, meaning like I am supportive of you in your sexual journey, whatever that means for you, whoever you like, love, don't want to be with whoever you identify as, all that's fine with me. And I'm going to help you hopefully support you in the best way I know how to your own path, right? Like as you're curious, as you learn about yourself, as you come out or not or whatever, I'm there for you. And so I know being in Los Angeles, uh, it not everyone has that. Like you said, you're from a very conservative country and I, I feel very fortunate that I live in a very liberal city that is open to those kinds of conversations and allows people to be who they are without fear or uh, shame and there's more acceptance. Um, I'm not saying everybody in LA is perfect, you guys, by the way. I'm just saying that by and large, like we have more clinicians that are LGBTQ plus uh, supportive therapists or what I call a sex positive therapist. Um, anyway, so when it comes to, sorry, I got an itch in my ear here. When it comes to being bisexual and coming out, I, because of where you're at normally, so for anybody else out there, normally what I would say is, of course, you should bring this up in therapy. It's part of who you are. It's part of you know, um, part of your process. And if there are, are anxieties or worries that come up with, should I come out to my family or not? Or should I, what if, I, you know, what if I want to bring my boyfriend, girlfriend, whomever to this party? How do I go about that? All those things. Um, you should have that have already been talked about in therapy so that you can get that support as you make decisions that are good for you. Right. So that's what I would normally recommend. However, Based on especially the fact that the person left that comment that their therapist was like kind of judgmental and maybe a little more religious or conservative than they were, um, I think it's good to test the waters, which is also what that person kind of commented about. And I think it's good to like um, maybe make a, a reference to a friend that came out as gay and see how they respond. And I don't mean this to like be manipulative or or anything. But we're just making sure it's safe for you because the thing that I would hate to have happen is what the person in the comment below this mentioned that their therapist reacted poorly because that can affect your therapeutic relationship and make it really hard for you to come in and be yourself and talk honestly and openly and that would just be devastating and I don't that hurts my heart so um I would test the waters that way um maybe when you say when you bring that up like I had a friend that came out as gay and I'm very happy for them or whatever and that you could ask them do you have any friends that are gay or bisexual um you know you could then that would tell you, you'd know right away. Um, and if they respond positively, which I'm crossing my fingers, I hope they do, um, then I think that it is great to bring it up. Um, and to answer your question in a short fashion, like what is therapy material and what isn't? Like I've always talked about, the more information that we give our therapists, the better they, the better able they will be to do their job. Meaning if we're going to tell them only one like facet of our life, then they're only going to be able to help us with that facet of our life. But the more we're able to share and the more honest and open we're able to be, the more they can help us with all aspects of who we are and who we want to be. And so I think the more we share, the better. But again, because I don't want anything to, I don't want, you know, I don't want it to be detrimental to your treatment and your therapy. Let's test those waters first um, just to make sure it's okay. So 
Yeah, keep us posted. And I'm so sorry again that that happened to the person in the comments. And I hope your therapist, for the person who asked the original question, I hope it goes well. Question number six says, I want my therapist to be proud. So I stop self-harming. I stop acting on my impulses. However, I myself indeed don't really care about hurting my body. I wonder if my motivation is all wrong. If then, does it really matter? Or is it fine as long as it can stop me from hurting myself? This was a great question. I've had, um, I've been asked this, I feel like I've been asked this on live streams in the past, but maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Um, however, when it comes to self-injury, it's, this is great for starters, okay? The fact that you want your therapist to be proud and so you've stopped self-harming. I would bring that up with your therapist because this is so important and key to your recovery. We need to talk to our therapist about this and understand why it is we can do it for someone else, but we can't do it for ourselves. Because the goal of like what I would work on you with is to get you to be able to do it for yourself. We're not at that point yet, but I'll take this as a win. I like some of my patients will say, I'll do it for you because I signed the no, no harm contract and I'll see you next week. And I'm like, I will take it. Until we figure out why you're doing this and what's happening and why the urge still exists, I'll take it. So I would bring this up with your therapist because we need to figure out, um, my guess would be that it's something to do with attachment and potential, um, I don't know, maybe abuse or uh, difficulty with our parents growing up, not feeling loved and cared for in the way that we wanted. Could be part of our borderline personality disorder if that happens to be what you're diagnosed with. Um, there's a lot of things in there because attachment comes to mind when we want our therapist to be proud and we really need that. We It can be part of like us not getting the love and attention we needed as a child. And so we can look for that in other people. Um, and again, like the abuse and the trauma and that can, uh, now we have a safe person to go to so we can find ourselves wanting to please them so they don't go away, right? That fear of abandonment that can accompany borderline personality disorder. Um, there's a lot of parts to that. And so the real goal of treatment then is to figure out why you self-harm why you self-harmed in the first place. What purpose does it serve for you? What is it trying to help you numb out from or express to people um, or to yourself? What is it that you don't feel that this helps you feel? Or I don't know, there's a ton of ways I could kind of ask that question, but it's like, what do you get out of it? Why did it start? When did it start? Usually there's a triggering event or events that led up to it. Um, I'm very curious. And so I would be very curious with your therapist and talk about it with them. Try to figure out what the root of this is. Why do we engage in self-injurious behavior? And why do we not still not care about hurting our body? What, what purpose is it still serving us? And then I'd also be kind of curious about other behaviors that maybe have come up. Are we, is eating getting weird? Are we harming ourselves in other ways? Or are we exercising some ways? Are we uh, lashing out of people in our relationships, like what's happening? Uh, shopping, sex, uh, like overspending, being over-sexualized more than normal. Um, those are things I'd be curious about too, because it tends to be when we take away one coping skill, another one crops up unless we have a positive, healthy one to put in its place. It's usually about five healthy ones, actually. I'm sorry that it's five to one, but that's just the ratio that tends to work. Um, so yeah, that, that, those are my thoughts. We really have to figure out why it exists so that we can heal it. Um, and I think it's fine for now. Um, and I would use this opportunity to really dig into the reason behind it with your therapist so that you can figure out and heal. Because maybe it is abuse and we need to do some trauma work. Maybe it is attachment-based and we need to do some attachment-based treatments, whether that's like 
reparenting, uh, like remothering ourselves, things like that. I don't know, but we have to figure out, you know, where this comes from so we can heal. Um, and then the urge to self-injure will go away completely because it doesn't have a reason to be there anymore, right? It's like uh, you could, it's a way to cope. So it'd be like, hey, I uh, I journal every day to vent all the things that I feel. But when I have a really good day, I don't actually feel like journaling that much. It doesn't have a purpose, right? It doesn't serve that. There's no purpose for it to serve. Um, so anyway, yes, those are my thoughts about it. And I think it's fine for right now. I'll take it. I'll take it. Like I said. Okay. Question number seven. Hi, Katie. Hope you're doing great. I am today. Thank you. It says, can you talk about how to go through with the need of going to see a gynecologist, but at the same time, not having been able yet to deal with even thinking of going? I was sexually abused since the age of six for about two years, and I never, I have never been to the gynecologist. I rationally know why maybe I haven't followed through with my impulse of going, but still, I feel I can't find a way to follow that impulse through. Sorry for any mistake. English is my first language. Now, this person who asked quite a few of these questions, people love their questions, and they always said, sorry for any mistake. English is my first language, and their English is impeccable and beautiful. So you all are doing great. Don't worry. Um... We can always figure it out together. So I have videos about this. Um, I, You guys find them, maybe put it in the comments or something, but um, I believe you could, I talk about it in my sex series and I also talk about it, I did like this women's health series. Um, it, I talk, uh, fuck, I forget what it's called, you guys. But I bet if you look up um, Katie Morton doctor's appointment or Katie Morton, even gynecologist, um, it, it should come up. That's what I would search for. Anyways, um, the real way to go through with the need to see someone, cause we should see our gynecologist for our, you know, yearly checkups. We should all be getting yearly physicals, going to our dentist at least once a year, hopefully twice. Some people in the comments said they also don't go see the dentist. And I've had many patients struggle with both of these things. And my answer for both is going to be the same. And here's what it is. Okay. Um, First of all, we need to call, even if we have to have a friend call or have a therapist support us and call, or we write a script and we read it off. We have to call the doctor's office, dentist, gynecologist, whoever we got to see. And we need to tell them like, hey, um, you know, my name is Sally Jesse Raphael. She's an old talk show host, if you don't know who I'm referencing. And I have an appointment next week. And I just needed to tell you that um, I've never been to see the dentist or the gynecologist before um, because um, I was abused when I was a kid and it's really uncomfortable. Uh, I wanted to let you know because what I need from you is um, I'm going to need the doctor to tell me what they're going to do before they do it. And I need to have a supportive person in there with me. Okay. So we're going to call ahead of time. We're going to let them know. I know that's already a lot. I know that's overwhelming practice saying this. Say it out loud to yourself. Say it out loud to your therapist. Like I said, I completely support having a friend do it for you. They might not be so emotionally charged with it and they can get it out and we can make sure that they know and they'll make a mark in your uh, file so that you don't have to do this again. Unless you change doctors, you don't have to let them know. And even then, as long as you sign the release for all of your medical information to go over to the other doctor, hopefully you never have to have that conversation again. Okay. So it's really important. Please let them know. Then like I mentioned, we're going to bring a support person. Who's our most supportive, loving, understanding person? Could be a best friend, roommate, uh, you know, romantic partner, 
uh, other family member, I don't know, somebody, somebody in your life, pick somebody who's loving, supportive and makes you feel okay. And you can have them talk you through it, like, you know, distract you. You can, you know, have them hold your hand. You can have them ask the doctor repeatedly, like, okay, make sure you tell them what you're going to do next before you do it. That is so helpful. I've heard that from many of my patients and from many of you that them telling you like, hey, I'm going to do this next. Okay, we're going to swab now. It might, you might feel a little discomfort. We'll be done in a minute. You know, they kind of tell you what they're doing. Um, that can be really helpful. Um, also, if you want to request to see a female, uh, if that, I don't know if your abuser was male or female, um, but we might want to see someone who is the gender that like the opposite of what our abuser was. That can be really helpful. Um, like I personally see a female gynecologist and she's lovely. And um, I've never seen a male. I don't know. I probably could, but I, I've just never have. It's more comfortable for me. And that's okay. So those are that's my advice. Um, and then the fact is getting a friend involved or a supportive person ensures that we make it to that appointment um, and ensures that we go, like maybe even ask them to drive you or help, you know, just help support. Sometimes we need extra support. It's okay. This is really scary. And trust me when I tell you that when you go, you'll realize it's uncomfortable. Nobody likes going to see a gynecologist. I'll just be honest. However, it's not actually that scary and it's pretty quick. It's like 10 minutes. You're done. So, you know, sometimes maybe counting can help you count down, but it'll be okay. It's not that bad. I promise. Okay. Question number eight it says, Hey, Katie, can you talk about getting blocked at session when talking about something that you really want to talk about, but that it's really hard or shameful? I was sexually abused as a kid for two years and I've been in therapy off and on for nine years. With my last therapist, I'd been feeling really comfortable. In my last session, I tried to talk about this, these urges that I've had. Um, oh, I've been having of having sex, but not being able to. I get sort of blocked when trying to better to explain it better. And we kind of go in another direction. This has happened to me before, and it's been hard to control. I feel I really need to talk about these hard things in order to understand and deal with the other things in my life. I agree with you. So I wanted to know your advice on how to get past these blocks. Thank you for everything you do. Of course, I'm happy to be helpful. And the truth about this is there's a lot of things that are really uncomfortable, especially when it comes to um, sex and sexual identity and having sex. Um, not to mention talking about past traumas can be really hard. Um, yes, a lot of things and even things that we do that we're kind of embarrassed of, like impulsive behavior. Like I've had patients, you know, who wait years to tell me that, you know, they're a, they're a male and they wear female underwear, something like that, or some fetishes or liking to dress up in a different way. There's a lot of stuff that people do, um, and it's not the job of the therapist to judge that, just FYI, so it's okay. Um, and to be honest, if we're struggling to bring it up in session, my best advice is to either email it, write it down, and read from it. I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but I would do it first thing. When you start session, I'd be like, I have to tell you something, and I keep having a tough time, and then I would read. I'd just be like, okay, so I have been thinking, I would legitimately just read it like that, So, and that's completely fine. Um, and then something you can do ahead of time that would might maybe help is just writing it out. And yes, you can write it out and then you can delete it if you want. If it makes you uncomfortable, you can write it and tear it up if you don't want it out there. But I really encourage you to write it, read it out loud, get comfortable with the language because the reason we usually get blocked up and shut down in therapy is because one of those words like sex comes across our lips and we are uncomfortable with it. And we feel some sort of judgment and shame and embarrassment that's all tied up in what that means. And then we shut down and we can't get past it. 
And if we haven't gotten it out effectively to our therapist, they might not fully understand what you're trying to express. And then they might, like you said, take it in another direction because they maybe just don't know. Um, and so practicing saying it out loud, even if it's just in your car to yourself, maybe you park somewhere where no one can hear what you're saying, you can practice. Um, that can really help too because that allows us to breathe, take our time with it, maybe shut down, try it again, right? We can do it over and over until we feel comfortable and then say it in therapy, but reading it can help too. Um, but I still would encourage you to practice ahead of time just so it's not such a shocker and we don't like dissociate or uh, get so maxed out that we shut down. We want to make sure that it can be beneficial throughout that therapy session. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's my advice. Um, and just journaling about it in general and, and talk talking about it more will get easier and easier as we do that. The more we talk about something, the more we uh, write about something and process something, the more perspective we gain on it and the, the more language we have to describe what we're going through and the better we feel. Um, keep pushing, keep doing it. Um, tr- I Just trust me when I tell you that there's no judgment. I know it, you can still feel embarrassed, but I'm just telling you from a therapist's perspective, you think uh, we've heard it all. I can't even tell you like the things that I've heard in sessions. Um, and it just is, and it's okay. And I'm glad they brought it up because then we were able to do something about it, right? We were able to work on it, talk it through, figure it out, get some tools in there and ways to better manage maybe the upset that comes along with it. So I hope that helps. Okay. Question number nine. Oh, this is a good one. I mean, they're all good. I know I say that every question, but they're all good. <laughs> says, hey, Katie. How do you decide whether a relationship is toxic and you should leave or that you should be supportive and get that person help? For example, if a family member has been extremely toxic and is verbally and verbally abusive for a long time, but has a mental illness and a drug addiction, should I be supportive and try to get them help? Or do I just end the relationship because it's not healthy for me? I feel there's an expectation to stay in the relationship because they are family. Ugh, yes, I hate that stuff. I'm supposed to support them and help them no matter what. But on the other hand, the relationship is negative and it causes me a lot of stress. Is there a right and wrong here? I hope this makes sense. It totally makes sense. Then there were comments below this said, what if the mental illness was addiction, which they kind of mention in this, that it is? Or what if you had a really complicated relationship with them and they're not being um, they're not being toxic or abusive or neglectful right now, but you feel obligated to support them emotionally, but you just feel resentful about it. And this person's talking about their parents. So it's like they used to be bad but now they're not. And so I'll get into both of these things, but I'll start with the original question. So the truth about uh, familial relationships, meaning relationships with our family, is so often they lack any healthy boundary because it is completely okay and normal to support someone, help them get the assistance that they need, listen to them. However, there's also a line where we're not responsible, meaning I can't make someone get better. I can't ensure they get to their appointments. It's not on me to do all of this legwork or to uh, allow them to talk poorly to me or abuse me or, you know, they're, they're talking about drug addiction. So if they're uh, still engaging in addictive behaviors, I'm not responsible for that. And nor is it up to me to like pour their alcohol out, throw their drugs away, uh, hide the money so they can't afford it. I don't know. All the things that those of us who are codependent or are uh, enmeshed with fa- family that have addiction problems, all those things that we do, that 
it, it's interesting because um, I've been to Al-Anon with tons of patients over the years as well as AA. And part of what they talk about is like how AA alcoholics have their own addiction and the addiction of the family is the, the it's not even need, but it's like this innate response to try to control the person who is addicted. Meaning we try to do all these things to like prevent them. We try to act perfect so that they don't do that again. Or, you know, we try to do all these things to control what they do and spoilers, unfortunately we can't control them. And so I, I just want to say that because I think that that needs to be said because what is happening here is yes, someone can have a mental illness and a drug addiction. And yes, we can have compassion for them and we can have understanding and we can offer support that we're able to give. Everyone's ability to support someone else is going to be different. And just because their family doesn't mean that we have to do everything. We can still have boundaries. In fact, we should like have boundaries in families always, always. Every relationship has boundaries, family ones, uh, friend ones, coworker ones, all the things need boundaries. All relationships need boundaries. So hear that because it's important. And so when it comes to family, I know people want to say it's different. It's not fucking different. Okay. I know it's hard, but again, it's not fucking different. If someone's been abusive and is toxic and even engaging with them is hard for you, what I need you to do and what um, I've worked with so many of my patients with this over the years is like, I'm going to need you to figure out what it is they ask of you. Okay. Let's make a little list. What is it, what is it that they're asking of me? Are they asking me to uh, make sure all of their bills are paid and the house is clean and the food is in the fridge and everything's good so they can just go on being, an, you know, having an addiction and struggling with mental illness and not getting any better and not actually getting help? Hmm. Okay. Maybe that's what they're asking me for. What am I able to give? Maybe all I'm able to give, which is plenty, because you can give nothing and that's plenty. What I'm able to give is I'm able to take them to their therapy appointments because I would like to support them getting help. So that's what I will do. Okay, so now we have these two lists. We have the one list of the things they're asking for us and we have the list of the things that, that we're able to do. And I want you to keep those lists out. Actually, you could even just toss the one that they're asking, but I want you to keep your list of what you're able to do and I want you to check that before you say yes to anything. Because I give you full permission to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm not able to do that. We don't have to give any explanation beyond that. I'm not able Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not available to do that. Those are true statements. I want you to know those are fully 100% true and full statements and no is a complete sentence. Okay. You got that? It's a complete sentence. So you have every right to say no. And so this goes along um, with any toxic relationship, but especially in families, I find people put up with this shit for way too long and then we're just super, super resentful. And then the second we can get out, like when we get old enough or let's say the person passes away, then we like don't even know what to do with ourselves. We're like lost um, or we like run away and never see our family again. And I would I would encourage all of us to work on these healthy boundaries so that when we give things to our family, they are things that we're able and willing to give. I know it's really difficult and I know it's uncomfortable, but you can do it. I believe in you. And because this person has a drug addiction, I would encourage um, you to get into Al-Anon, um, even though it's not just, it's, you know, it sounds like it's just Alcoholics Anonymous and the family from of alcoholics, but it's people wh whose family members have addiction problems and it can be really helpful for you. There's tons of books and things that are really great. 
Um, and okay, so then the real question is, when? how do you decide whether a relationship is toxic you should leave or that you should be supportive and get them help? I think it's in that list because everyone's going to be different on the amount that they're able to tolerate. Um, however, if we get nothing out of a relationship, there's no reciprocation, right? There's no give and take. It's all, they're all take and they've always been all take. I would encourage you to to not engage in that relationship. Sure, we can go through periods of time when people need us more than we need them or vice versa. But over the long haul, we should see some, you know, ups and downs and ins and outs and we're getting some support and then they're getting some support and, you know, it goes back and forth and not telling anybody to keep tabs. But if you can't even consider a time in your life when they actually helped you or supported you or listened to you or it's been so long, it's like hard to even recall, let's just take a break. It's okay to distance yourself. I don't think that any of us have to make this decision where it's cut and dried. Oh, you're out of my life forever and never talk to them again. But I do believe in taking breaks and distancing ourselves so that we can think clearly because too often when we're uh, surrounded by someone who is an addict and who is, um, you know, struggling and is, is toxic, we almost can't even hear our own thoughts or our own needs anymore. We only hear theirs. And so maybe putting some distance between you and them can help you think more clearly uh, you know, see things more clearly, give you new perspectives. So you can figure out what's best for you. Um, yes. And uh, I've said this before on a podcast, but just in case someone needs to hear it, we don't owe our parents anything. I know a lot of people, um, and especially a lot of like narcissistic parents and manipulative parents will be like, after all I did for you when you were a child feeding you and clothing you, oh, you mean you chose to have a child and then you had to do the things that are involved in being a parent? oh, I don't owe you anything just because you decide to do that. Like, I'm I'm helpless because I'm a child and you did the things you... What? Wait, what? Right? You don't owe them anything. Just throwing that out there. Relationships when we get older are built on communication, mutual respect, understanding, and growth, right? It, they're not based on guilt and shame and embarrassment. So don't allow them to, like pull those levers on you um and then so the final oh is there a right or wrong here so that's the the final part of this question and the truth is you have to do what's right for you putting some distance between you and this person for a little bit will help you see more clearly and then i want you to make those lists and pick what's best for you and then we gotta hold the line and it's gonna be hard and they're gonna push back and they're gonna try to guilt you good decisions are never made involving like Decisions involving guilt are never good ones, right? Like there, guilt should not be part of our decision-making process, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Someone trying to guilt us into doing something means that we're not doing it because we want to. We're doing it because we feel bad. And I don't know if anybody else out there can like just hear that for a second. I wouldn't want anybody doing something just because they feel bad. You feel bad for me. That's why you're showing up. So I always have to make you feel bad. Like it's just not healthy. It's not, it shouldn't be part of any relationship. Unfortunately, it's a part of a lot of relationships. So I'm just, so that's my advice on that one. And then the last little part, saying that parents used to be toxic and abusive and neglectful, but now they're being fine. Um, you're going to have to work on that in therapy and talk it through, process it for yourself so you can decide what's best for you. If it's not good for you to engage in that relationship right now, that's okay. If you need time before you're willing to engage or you're not willing to engage ever again, those are choices that you can make. Um, but again, if they are trying to be better and they are trying to be better people, that doesn't mean that you have to offer them the chance to do it. 
But if you want to, you get this opportunity and you can. But you have to figure out, again, what those boundaries are. What are they asking from you? And what are you willing to give right now? Is that a phone call once every other week? Okay, that's fine. You have to let them know that that's what you, when you're available and you schedule those things. If that is you go see them every month and that's it, okay, then we communicate that. So I'm just telling you, you have to figure out what they're asking of you, what you're willing to give, and then you're going to have to process through all that horrible neglect um, and abuse from your childhood um, because it happened and we can't just, time doesn't heal wounds. When people say that, it's like time and a lot of fucking work and therapy is what heals wounds. Um, and so I'm sorry that that happened to you and it's okay to feel resentful and upset about it, but we just need to do something with those emotions. We need to process it. We need to talk about it with someone so that we can feel better because you can feel better. Okay. And the final question says, Hey Katie, is it normal to feel jealous of your therapist's other patients? Yes, it is. I have videos about this. I often find myself ruminating on where I stand in the pecking order. Does my therapist like me as much as the others? Is she annoyed with me? I know this is related to attachment 100% and I dealt with a lot of my attachment issues, but I'm finding that since COVID, I haven't been able to see her in person and her Wi-Fi often doesn't work. So we can't even do telehealth, just a phone call. And it's exacerbating my fear of abandonment and worry that I'm the pain in the butt patient she dreads all week. I love your podcast and your videos. Sincerely, overly attached. And I know it. <laughs> that, I just had to add that. It was so cute. Um, and I'm so glad that you enjoy the podcast and the videos. So it definitely has to do with attachment. Um, what I would encourage you to do, first of all, bring this up with your therapist. You're going to have to talk about it. I know it's uncomfortable. But this gives us information, kind of like I talked about at the beginning, how all this is really helpful information when it comes to our own work because what's happening in therapy is something that's been happening in our life. And the more we kind of are curious about it and dive into it and uh, learn more about it, I guess, the, the better we'll be able to see what our next steps in therapy are. So it's really, really helpful. So I would bring this up with your therapist. And this is very normal to feel jealous of your therapist, other patients because of attachment um, happens all the time. And then what I would have you do is I would have you check your facts. So because attachment, I find DBT to be very helpful with attachment as well. I know a lot of people only utilize dialectical behavior therapy, which is what DBT is uh, for those with borderline personality disorder. But I feel like it can really be utilized in a much broader, like broader swath of people or a, a bigger swath of people, I guess. Um, and so Checking the facts is really, really helpful because you're letting this rumination pull you into this uh, abandonment fear and this worry and all this like chaos of like, oh my God, I'm annoying. Oh my God, it's a shame that something's wrong with you, right? If we've, if this person's had abuse in your past, I don't know if you have, but if we've had an abuse in our past, abuse, often we internalize it with a lot of shame and guilt and embarrassment. And if you guys don't know the difference between like shame and let's say guilt or embarrassment is guilt in uh an embarrassment have to do with something that we did that's wrong like oh i did something that i wish i didn't i'm embarrassed or i did something bad i'm guilty i feel guilty shame is i am bad something's wrong with me and i believe that that's where this is coming out of and so i would just encourage you to check your facts with this so what i mean by that is when we start having these thoughts you're going to track your thoughts we're going to start writing them down um i like one of the thoughts would be like um I wonder if she likes me as much as the others. I don't think she does. I wonder, uh, I think she's annoyed with me. I'm just reading some of the things you said and making them into statements. I don't know if you believe these, but I'm just saying. Um, 
I'm afraid she's going to leave me. I think she's going to leave me. What are your thoughts? I want you to write them down. And then I want you to check your facts. Facts that would stand up in court. These aren't thoughts aren't facts. Also, remember that thoughts are just thoughts, not facts. So check those facts because you really don't have any spoilers, but you're going to try to find them. And I want you to look and then I want you to look for facts to support. You guessed it. Opposite action slash opposite thought. So if your thought is she's going to leave me, opposite would be she's never going to leave me. And I want you to look for some facts to support that because you've got a hell of a lot of facts to support those other thoughts. And I want you to keep doing this until you start to feel a little bit better. And then you can read that like list of things that you've written, those facts, um, when you're feeling a little overwhelmed. But again, bringing this up in therapy is really key because a lot of the attachment and abandonment is it's really hard for people right now I, I hear I hear you I hear it from my patients because we just don't feel as connected luckily I have really good internet connection so we are able to do video chats but it's still not the same um so I totally get it um but yeah this this will hopefully help you feel better checking those facts man it really 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 helps um because you'll find that you were taking your thoughts as facts and then internalize those as beliefs and we want to stop that cycle so got to nip it in the bud. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for just being here and being you. And thank you for sharing the podcast. We have a lot of new people watching. So that is really exciting. Um, continue to please share. I, these are usually not something that I can monetize in any way. So really sharing is the best way to help. Um, if you're looking for a way to help. Um, I love you all. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. Uh, you can look out for my post in the community tab next Monday. Um, if you have another question or a follow-up, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great day, and I will see you soon. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.